Welcome everyone to Northview Extra Podcast number 208. This is Darcy, your host, and I missed the last one, which was uh, up at the retreat. Of course, you guys didn't know what number it was till Kyle came through and rescued the day with... No, actually, someone in the audience knew, actually. Oh, is that right? signed it to me so that... So what yeah. was it like with a live studio audience? Uh, it was fantastic, actually. <laughs> kind of fun, yeah. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Because it. it felt like, you know, when I say something funny, mm. it's nice to have people laughing. Yeah, because we don't laugh when you no, think you, guys you say don't. something funny. Exactly. So it was, it was, it was nice. We, we hold it in so we don't disrupt your <laughs> continued funniness. You know, yeah, it, right. In some ways, it, it was like, we should add in. Oh, a laugh know, track. A laugh track. Like, so <laughs> like when I say sitcom. funny things. <laughs> You know, there's this, yeah, like like 1990s. But if you had the button, you'd think everything you said is funny. You'd just keep pressing the button. There'd be constant laughter. Ezra used yeah. to do this. He had something That's on his right. phone. That's right. He had an app on his phone. Was it? It was clapping. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like clapping. Applause. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy is here to uh, be the producer of this podcast. Yep. Hello. And other things that we task him to do. My water's empty. Um, <laughs> Andy is here. It's good to be here. Oh, that's good. Thanks, Andy. Kyle is here. Yeah. Nice to be with you today. Who? Yeah, you looked at Andy when you said that. Well, I mean, whoever's listening, they're listening, and so we're sort of with them. Yes, the listening, listening audience. So. Yeah, I, I listened to the podcast when I was uh, riding my bike the other day, and I, I felt like I was with you. I was there. Mm-hmm. I felt like part were of the studio. You listening to one audience. you were in? No, 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 no. I don't listen to those. Uh, Actually, there's always a piece that'd be of me weird. with us. <laughs> Greg is here. Hi. Who's not here? The guy is he? Is Ezra? Hello. <laughs> and Jeff. Hello. <laughs> that kind of sounded like Ezra. Everybody looked at me like I'm the one that should impersonate. I, everybody's Jeff. going, I'm not impersonating Jeff. I, like I don't my, know how to like impersonate my job. Jeff. Unless I yelled a lot, then maybe I can impersonate Jeff. <laughs> so we started a new series called uh, Dave. And uh, Jeff and Ezra preached on it this last weekend, so they're not here. So you guys will have to maybe answer in their stead. Uh, I was not here either, so I, I haven't listened to the, the sermon yet. Um, this but is the second sermon. Second. Hmm. Oh, that's right. Series. Ezra did one. Two, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so was it out of First Samuel? Yes, it was. Okay. So I was, I was Jeremy, there for both services. Y- you what? I heard both Jeff and um Ezra preaching. really yeah I did it was good what was that Do like? you mean like this weekend you know what truthfully though there's like for those listening like you know we we're you know Ezra's speaking in the, at the mission campus and Jeff was speaking here at Northview so it is kind of interesting no, no, though at the Abbotsford campus sorry Abbotsford North what did here. I say Northview yeah at the Abbotsford campus and it was so it's interesting to hear somebody um you know give this on the same passage just a how, different take on yeah it. a different take on it so I thought that was, it was interesting to see the kind of things that Jeff didn't pick up on where Ezra did. For example, and this this was one of the things I thought was interesting, and I was I'd be curious for you guys if you would have picked up on this one, is Ezra took some time to explain how the giant could be nine feet tall or over nine feet tall, where where Jeff kind of just passed on by that, and uh, steroids. I know, right? Yeah, steroids. Well, actually, Ezra uh, what Ezra said I thought was interesting, just talking about the armor. And how often at that time they wore those um, helmets, and that those helmets also had a crust. Yeah, crust on it, and that when you took all into account, you know. So he was really like four foot eight. Probably with a really big hat. <laughs> really big hat. 
That's intimidating. Uh, so I don't know. I thought that was I thought that was interesting. And sometimes I wonder though. Like I always have to ask myself when I'm listening to a sermon. Okay, like how much am I being affected? Just my culture mm-hmm. wants some sort of naturalistic explanation mm-hmm. for nine feet tall. You know, unless there is Andre the Giant, right? Which is he's a big dude. But I don't know. I'm always looking for that kind of stuff. I don't know how if you guys do that as well. And sometimes I just. I wonder if Ezra's explanation was naturalistic. I would say absolutely, absolutely. But is that a bad thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't think one if it's based on you know historical facts and whatever things they've found out, then you go, well, yeah, that makes sense then. Right, right. Why are you thinking that? I thought it was a good thing. Goliath was maybe like some sort of. You're uh, saying he was like eight seven. Plus a big hat or like... Right. What I'm saying is I find it interesting how skeptical I am when I come mm. to uh, any document uh, when I'm reading it. I'm very, I'm very skeptical. Mm. So when you read about a giant over nine feet tall, my skeptical meter starts going. Yeah. We, we know from the good people of Guinness that the there's world records for all kinds of crazy things. So I, I don't know offhand. Do we know what the world record... Well, this, this, is is a great Jeremy, this is a great Jeremy question while you're producing. So instead of checking your email, <laughs> go to... looking up Andre the Giant. Uh, all right, well, you're close. He was 2 meters, 24 centimeters. Tall. All right, for an American, what's that, that in does real, nothing. Yeah, what's that in real? Two meter sticks. <laughs> Just picture a meter stick. I don't know, but the tallest man in medical history for whom there is irrefutable evidence is Robert Pershing Wadlow, USA who, when last measured on June 27th, 1940, was found to be 8 feet 11 inches huh? Whoa. tall. So you put a big hat on him. He's He could be a 10-footer. Mm-hmm. So how many feet was Andre? I mean, meters? Andre? Yeah. 2.24. Well, Wadlow was like 3.2 meters. This is a fun game. That was the coffin. So how big was he? He was smaller than the coffin, I'm guessing. Okay, so <laughs> we're gonna go into First Samuel sixteen, thirteen, and fourteen. Our first question to That's the seven point three five feet. Andre's just giant. over seven. Yeah, it's not that big. Seven. Not compared to that other dude. Said that other guy, I think weighed like a hundred pounds. Yeah, seven seven feet four inches. That's big. Anyway, sorry. Thanks for that clarification. That's big. It, it, you know. <laughs> Whenever I think Andre the Giant, too, I don't think pro wrestling. Princess Bride. I think Princess, Princess Bride. Bride. Yeah. That's yeah. all I can think about. And he was such a sweet guy in there. I know. Stop rhyming and I mean it. <laughs> hey, anybody want a peanut? <laughs> <laughs> that was his line. Yep. <laughs> Classic movie. We used that in, it was already old when I was doing you, like a long time ago. But that was always the go-to movie because it was oh, yeah. clean and all the kids knew it. We had one kid in our youth group, literally, and this is true, he could recite the whole <laughs> movie, every character, every line. Respect. And yeah. you know, one, one fun fact about that movie, when it came out in theaters... Wait, can you give us two fun facts? <laughs> you know what? For you, Darcy, I will. Okay. Uh, when it came out in theaters, it was a bust. Nobody went to see it and uh, had... And then just gained a following. Oh, then when it went to, you know, when it, after theater, it gained a huge following and became a cult classic. So what's the second fun fact? Oh, uh, that it became a cult classic. Oh, that's lame. <laughs> okay, Jeremy's going to read First Even Samuel. Even the like, a two-part like, <laughs> Jeremy's going to read First Samuel 16, 13, and 14, and then we got a couple questions from there. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. This is Samuel anointing David. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So the question is, um, it says, I was reading through 1 Samuel, and I was wondering about 16.13, where it says, From that day on the Spirit uh, of the Lord came upon David in power. is a slight different translation than Jeremy read. Uh, and 1614, uh, why did the spirit of the Lord leave Saul? And why would the Lord send an evil spirit to torment him? Any ideas? Um, yeah, in the Old Testament before Christ comes and, and dies for sin and the spirit indwells all believers, the spirit would function and move um, before Christ in really specific ways to accomplish the purposes of God. So one of the ways to that God did that was through the kings. So the kings would be um, as the, the leading representatives of the nation of Israel, the kings would be anointed by God and God's spirit would dwell on them and give them power for that task as he was providing that for them. So um, here you see the God making the transition in a sense from blessing and recognizing Saul as the king mm -hmm. to blessing and recognizing David as, as the king of, of God's, God's people. Um, so we don't want to confuse that type of action of the Holy Spirit with the way the Holy Spirit acts and interacts with believers today. All believers today, um, when we trust in Christ, we are as part of the new covenant that we celebrate through communion and recognize at the communion table. As part of the new covenant, the Spirit indwells us. Uh, in the old covenant, in the Old Testament, the Spirit will <coughs> empower and be upon people for specific tasks. But today, the Spirit indwells all believers to um, allow us to know the the wonders of, of, of knowing God, the, the, the power to follow him and to obey his commands. Um, so the Spirit's working different in the different covenants, and here is an example of that. One, one way, too, to tease this out that people might appreciate is this being anointed with oil that we read here in verse 13 um, is, is, how the, is how a Jew would crown a king. They didn't, they didn't put these crowns on them. You know, they, they anointed them with oil. And in fact... That's what the word Messiah, or in Greek, Christ, means. It means the anointed one. It's the one who's been anointed uh, with oil. Um, and specifically, they would have seen this as being anointed for a specific task. Is what Getting back to what Kyle is saying. So that <clears throat> God's Spirit is resting on them for a specific task. And in this case, uh, it would be to lead the people of Israel. So, so why would the Lord send an evil spirit to torment Saul? Like it's one thing, you know, for God to take his spirit away. Why would he send an evil spirit to torment him? It's a great question. Yeah, I think part of it is, is a recognition of that's one of the ways that God is um, showing his judgment mm. on Saul for um, what he's done. And, and so uh, this is God's world. He's done everything. There's, you know, angelic creatures that make decisions. Uh, there's you know, human beings that make all kinds of uh, all kinds of decisions, but overarching all these things is a God who who made us all, a God who gives us the breath and the power to do everything that we do. Um, and here, God is enabling, empowering, and even sending uh, this Spirit to um, uh, to a, a, as a form of, of judgment on on Saul. Hmm. Now, wouldn't you see this as Kyle as a, allowing an evil spirit to torment? Uh, Saul, not that 
there is an evil spirit of God that is tormenting Saul. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, the language in 14 says the harmful spirit is from the Lord. Your point is that God is allowing the spirit, not purposely sending it. Well, or that, well, what I mean is that I, I would be like, maybe God is purposely sending, but is that evil spirit God? Like, oh, yeah. I, do you see what I'm saying? So the spirit God himself or a different being creature? The point I'm getting at is God's not evil. Yes. Correct. Right? And so he's not, it's not like this is an evil spirit that's God. God has these, this is a, this dualistic thing. Right. That he's got so the good careful. spirit, the bad spirit. And he yeah. Can... So he took away the good spirit and now he's sending his bad spirit. And, right. Yeah. And, and so that's where I'm saying it's more of an allowing of an evil spirit. Yeah, whereas I think the, the concept that's being addressed here is that God is using something evil, not himself, something else evil, to judge Saul in, in a similar way to how God will use the evil Babylonians to judge Israel in the exile. Exactly. So God is not the one who is evil, but he uses that which is evil in his judging of Saul in this case and or to, or case to get people to turn and repent from from their ways he'll use those means yeah right but yeah. we do I mean this is one of those places that that will kind of bust open our categories of God if we think he he won't intentionally actively use the evil things of the world to accomplish his purposes yeah the story of Joseph is another example of that right where I mean yeah. that that the language I think is more of the allowing these things to happen but still that doesn't get God off the hook in terms of yeah my thing wouldn't be to try to get God off the hook but to make a distinction between God being good yep and not that there's this duality in God that's yep. both good and evil no, that's a good point so even though Saul had the spirit of the Lord on him before God took it away he was still doing some things that were not in alignment with what God would want. Yeah, so the Spirit, I think, in, in this case, is specifically highlighting his, um, the recognition that he's the king of the of the chosen people of God, the nation of Israel. So the Spirit was, as you know, the oil imagery was a sign of, of God's blessing and God's anointing, um, God's fulfilling his purposes through a king. And so that was Saul, but then that changed to David. So in this sense, the Spirit can only be on one king at a time. Um, and in that kingly blessing kind of sense, so yeah, the spirit in the moves, sense of the kingly blessing, right? So the spirit moves from in the blessing of the king from mm. Saul to David. So this uh, listener has another question from this: Does the Lord send evil spirits upon us? I'm not aware of any New Testament examples off the top of my head where we have the same kind of thing being described. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the the ultimate culmination of lots of these questions, if you look at the the crucifixion of Christ, so God uses the evil that um, you know, the selfishness and greed in Judas. He uses the evil of um, you know the 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 ruling political authorities to you know kind of make things calm and quiet as best they can. He uses the evil of the religious leaders who mm -hmm. don't want Jesus to be their king and and. So he uses all these uh, evil intentions, um, and Peter, as he reflects on this in Acts 2, he says, you know, God, this is part of God's foreordained plan, was to use the, use the desires of wicked men in order to accomplish 
these things. So um, God's sending an evil, you know, greater is he who is in you um, here in the New Testament if we have the Spirit indwelling us in a, in a special way, in a unique way that, that in a way that even David, neither David nor Saul had back in the Old Covenant, the way that the Spirit indwells us as part of the New Covenant is unique and special. So greater is he who is in you in the Holy Spirit than he who is, is in the world. Um, so we have the Spirit in us now, the Holy Spirit in us. So we have a unique um, weapon, a partner mm -hmm. in the battle of evil presently. Right. Good. Well, you said foreordained, I believe. And I wish I had a bell here I could ring because that's <laughs> the secret word for today. Because there's a question about foreknowledge and predestination that comes in from another uh, listener. What is foreknowledge and how does it compare to predestination? Uh, is it the same thing? And what are some biblical examples that God does not select a few to enter heaven, but rather we choose him or not? And how can we know that he has chosen us, chosen us if predestination is the case? So oh, there's a lot of questions in there. Yeah, yeah let's start with it's pretty heavy. So starting with what is what is foreknowledge and how does it compare to predestination? <laughs> so to start, foreknowledge is God's knowledge of the future, so that God knows. Um, all things, and he even knows what will happen in the future. And the question then becomes, if God knows everything and he knows what I'll do in the future, am I free to do otherwise? Hmm. And then the question comes, well, uh, what, what level of freedom do I have in light of God's foreknowledge? Now, the question, the, the person that wrote in, uh, I believe they asked, is there a difference between foreknowledge and predestination? Is that the second question? Well, it's part of the first question. Can, oh, we, it's part of the the first. Can we add in a piece of the foreknowledge bit, though, too? I, I agree that God knows the future, but I think to do justice to the biblical terminology of foreknowledge, we'd have to include this relational element. The fact that, that Jesus was foreknown is more than just the Father knowing ahead of time what Jesus would do in his ministry, but there's this sense of relationship and the, the fact that knew, the, the word know, <laughs> to know is in the Bible regularly used for for an intimacy. So yeah, we, we would say there's two, the knowing of facts, but knowing experientially as right. well. Right, and so it isn't just just the ability to know what will happen. It's also this, uh, I'm, I think of it as there's there's an investment in the person already. There's this, there's this relational aspect already at play prior to anything actually occurring. So... So, yeah, I, I don't want to just stay purely in the realm of God will know the events that will happen in the future. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. But this, sorry, the second question was... Is there a difference between foreknowledge and predestination? And, and I would say yes. I'm curious, Kyle, what you would say here, but I'd say yes, absolutely, there's a difference between God's foreknowledge and predestination. And on the one hand, God's foreknowledge is his factual and experiential uh, knowledge of, future, of all things. Whereas predestination is God's purposeful choosing of of individuals for salvation, so or or, or yeah. it doesn't necessarily need to just be for salvation; it could be for a specific task. Um, so I I would here's my first stab at at a response, and Kyle can come in and that clean up and correct me where I needed. I I think that foreknowledge and predestination are different activities, and yet. Foreknowledge and predestination are never um, 
they don't happen to different people. It's the same group of people. So Paul in Romans 8, when he talks about the, the people who will be saved, he says that those who are foreknew, who, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And then he talks about how they're justified and they're glorified. And so where they're called and justified and glorified. So uh, they're, they're different in their activity in terms of, I, I think they're distinct. They're not just, they're not two words for the exact same thing. And yet it's not the case then that some are foreknown and yet not predestined. What we want to, I think we'd want to keep those, those together. Yeah, I think that that's helpful. And in, in, in the midst of all this, there are two big things we want to keep in mind all the time. One is that God is sovereign. And second, that people are responsible and that we have, we make choices, we make decisions, we are involved in this. So um, God is not taken by surprise. He's sovereign in what he mm-hmm. does and what he's planned. Um, and neither are we simply robots or, you know, just just random accidents of the universe. Um, we we are, you know, people who have God's image and we have a will and we make decisions. Um, that passage I referenced um, in Acts two, I think, actually can help here bring some of these things together. Uh, so Peter, at, right at Pentecost, he's preaching in Israel. He says, "Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazareth, uh, the, excuse me, the Nazarene, was a man." Uh, pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. So they're looking at Christ's ministry, and they're like, you know, you guys were there. You saw him feed the 5,000. You saw him heal people. You saw all these amazing things that he did. Um, he's been crucified. He's been uh, resurrected. The Spirit has now come. And so Peter, Peter continues, um, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, so this is intentional, uh, on God's part, it's a determined plan. He has knowledge ahead of time. He's relationally, intentionally connected with, with this. So what did God do? He used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. So God's plan was to use the ill will of Judas and the Roman rulers and the religious rulers at the time in order to accomplish this, this task. Uh, then verse 24 of Acts 2, Peter says, God raised him up, raised Jesus up, uh, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So, you know, God uses people's desires and wills. Um, so we do make choices and we should make good choices, but he is sovereign over all these things as well. Th- these are hard things to, yeah. to wrestle with, to grapple with. These are big picture issues. Um, one really helpful sermon uh, by Tim Keller is called, Does God Control Everything? Hmm. And it's, it's a really good analysis of, of trying to look at both God's sovereignty and our responsible choices that we do make uh, from our own wills uh, and try to look at these and wrestle with these and, and, and bring these into the proper um, perspective and tension that they do have. I think this is a good point because some people uh, would say, well, if God knows the future, if he knows all things, well, he knows what I'll do. <clears throat> then I can't, and if I can't do otherwise, well, then how can I be held responsible for what I've done? Uh, it seems as though it's just determined. Um, it becomes very deterministic, and and you seem to have very little control over the future. Although that's where things get weird, because but you chose it, and so the question then becomes, you know, and and Kyle was saying, well, you're responsible. You do have a, a will, and you are held responsible for what you've done. And I, I don't see a problem with the fact that God knows what we've done and the fact that we've done it mm-hmm. and that it hasn't been scripted. 
uh, we, our entire lives have not been determined, um, aren't deterministic. Now, though, it seems though where people are going to make a distinction, though, from that and this idea of predestination in that God is choosing some for salvation. Hmm. Now, the <clears throat> person who wrote in the question asked is, and the que- next question is, there's some biblical examples that Christ does not select a few to enter heaven, um, but rather we choose him. So here's where you've probably heard us talk on this infinitum, like where I hold to more of a, uh, of a free will um, argument that we are not, um, where I hold, I lean more toward the Arminian side, Jeff leads more on the Calvinist side. I would argue that there are scriptures that support both sides. And I think, um, I think Jeff would agree with me. He's not here. Uh, that that's the case. So what's yes, I am, Andy. <laughs> I just get in the room. <laughs> that wasn't bad. Was that good? That was good. That's oh. close. Okay. So here's some here's some scripture verses that that demonstrate that we um, that that God wants everyone to come to 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 a knowledge of Him, a saving knowledge of Him. So you got the classic, which is John three sixteen. I won't read that. You've got John three thirty six. It says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Uh, you've got Ezekiel 33.11, uh, 2 Peter uh, 3.9. I'll read that one. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Uh, another one that we've quoted often here is is First Timothy two three. So I mean, though, yes, there's there's plenty of scriptural support. Now, can a Calvinist wrangle that into the predestination model? Ap- those scriptures, absolutely, you can. Now, are there scriptures? Are, ro- are, are you a cowboy? <laughs> a theological cowboy of sorts. <laughs> now, are there are there scriptures? Maybe you guys can give some scripture. Sorry. Sorry, you go. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, you keep We're going. done. <laughs> Barry McGuire had a song on years ago called Cosmic Cowboy. Oh, okay, that's good. Yeah, so that might fit. <laughs> so maybe you guys could give some scripture references for predestination. There's plenty of those as well. And, of course, the Arminian can take those and wrangle them to fit the theological view of, of uh, that they hold. So, Yeah, I mean, the... The, so I can give some verses, but before I give an example, I think the question, I, I feel like the question is leading a little bit in the sense that that we we can't put one of these categories over and above the other as more, uh, as as better than the other one. We can't say that, that for our choice and our responsibility to choose is more important than God's choosing who will be saved and we can't say that God's choosing who will be saved overrides then our legitimate choice and the responsibility of that. So I feel like there's always that tension of depending on where someone leans they they want to they want to balance up the scriptures to say see look the Bible teaches this so clearly this is more important. Whereas I I think the reason why we can find passages that say both is because both are true. And so how those two interact with each other and how they both are true and not contradictory, even though they appear to be contradictory, is beyond the bounds of what we're capable of understanding. But it's not like the Bible teaches that there are people who are saved who weren't chosen. 
or the Bible doesn't teach that there are people who are chosen who come to faith even though they never actually made a choice to do it. So, so there's, no, there's no category where one of these is true and the other one is not. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I can't stress that enough, that the dichotomy that we present as though one of these is true and the other one is false, it's a false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. And so Matthew 11 actually for me is, has become, because I preached it and I studied it, it's become really helpful for me because it says, uh, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, which is salvation, repentance and salvation, from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So he says that he, it's God's great, great plan that Jesus is worshiping God for, for hiding salvation from the wise and learned and revealing it to little children. And verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my father. No one knows the son. So there's that no word again, except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me. So these are, Jesus is saying, listen, you won't know God unless I choose to reveal him to you. But so then, come, come to me. <laughs> but then there's verse 28. Come to me. So there, there is no one without the other. So th- th- that for me is, a, is an example where, yes, the Bible teaches both. Yeah. And so that, that's where we need to land on it. Yeah, we can, we can wrestle with kind of the philosophy and the big thoughts of this. And those are important things to, to wrestle with in the terminology. Um, but as we're doing that, we don't want to leave it there. We don't want to only think about the big terms and all mm. the philosophical questions. We, want, we do want to engage that and, 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 and wrangle with that or lasso that or whatever <laughs> cowboys do. Um, but we don't want to simply do that. We want to look at the story. Um, so we don't want to just look at the statements of what mm. these words mean. We want to look at the story of how God has worked through mm. the nation of Israel, how he worked especially through Christ, what Christ did and what he taught, what his cross and resurrection have accomplished for us. Um, so we want to see the story of how God is bringing people to himself in the midst of however these philosophical things um, fit together. Um, and in the midst of that story, we want to. I think the last question was, well, how do you know? Yeah, how um, can we know that he's chosen us? Yeah, we want to look at the... The, the soul of this or how we kind of know these things too. Um, maybe a short uh, story. There were some missionaries working in, in, um, in South Asia and they were working um, in, in the, the sex trafficking industry and, and trying to minister to particularly women who were um, mistreated in, in really bad ways. And as they're getting to know them and talking about God, they're talking about God's love and God love, you know, God's love the world. And that's something that is all throughout scripture and something that we really cherish here and it's it's a vital truth but because of the way they have been so mistreated for so long their idea of love was really you know, just not in accord with scripture and so these 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 missionaries are working with them and trying to think through you know how do we communicate God's love to them when they don't know what love is or their their experience of quote unquote love has been so um, so bad so wrong um, so then in, as they were talking about God's love, they started to also talk about how there is a king and a king who calls people to himself and to relationship with himself. This king who um, is, has great power and he can work in mighty ways and he can, uh, one of the most mighty ways that he does work is to call people to, to, love, to, to know him and, and to this life of, 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 of hope and this true life. So as they started to talk about this king who chooses and decides these things, that really connected with these women 
um, because of their background. And they, they asked that question, well, how do we know then if we've been called? And they said, well, as we talk about this king and as we look at King Jesus and what he has done on earth and what he's taught here in the word and how all the scripture points to him, as you read this, as you hear this, as you, you know, engage with this, what's going on in your heart? Is this a kind of a king that you want to know? And if, if, if that's happening in your heart, then there's a good chance that he's calling you. That's how he calls you is because he's changing your own desires and your own affections to actually want to know him more and want mm-hmm. to follow him more closely. So, you know, these women were not wrestling with the great metaphysical questions of sovereignty and free will, yeah. um, but they were looking for a king who could call them to true life mm-hmm. and true love. So. Awesome. Like so, then very really clearly, then how would you say that they they know that they've been chosen? They know they've been chosen by how they're responding to the come come follow me. And as they see him, they see this Jesus who teaches confusing things and hard things sometimes. But they see this Jesus who is so tender and so uh, so concerned with with individuals. As they see this Jesus, and as they look at what he's done. Um, in his ministry, what he did on the cross, what he, what he guarantees because of his resurrection, as they look at this Jesus and they're drawn to him, that's one way that they know that they've, they've been chosen is because their hearts are changed. One of the things that's, that's been helpful for me, and just to pick up on this Matthew 11 passage, this call to discipleship, really verse 28, this is, this is really common language for a rabbi to talk like this. And so what, um, what does the word rabbi mean? Well, it means teacher. And so then if you're somebody that follows after a teacher, what does that make you? Mm-hmm. It makes you a student. And that's, that's exactly how they understood discipleship. A disciple was a student. And, and that's exactly how Matthew ends, right? Matthew 28. Mm-hmm. Go and make disciples. Go and make students of all nations. And that I want to be a student of Jesus Christ and that, that those people who follow after him and seek to you know, s- humble themselves under mm-hmm. his teaching Right to find salvation in Him, to find forgiveness in Him, but then continue on in that relationship, in this attitude of humility, in that they are seeking to learn from Him uh, what it means to truly live. Uh, that that to me is is a, is a disciple. That's somebody who who is following. Now here, let me just say something quick for listeners that have been listening to us talk on this for a while. I'll never forget once when I was working with Apologics.com. Half of those guys were Calvinists, half were Arminian, and one day we had this idea that we were going to have this debate, and we were going to debate it out and duke it out, we were going to figure out, you know, is Calvinism right or Arminianism right, and we are going to get this, we are going to get this all figured out, and at first I was like, yeah, let's do that, let's have that debate, because you'll probably notice on the podcast I don't really argue very hard for Arminianism, and there's a reason, and the reason is I just don't care a whole lot about the topic. Um, which might surprise some people. Uh, that's why when Jeff pushes on me or whatever, I, I just don't have a whole lot to push back because after that, during that Apologetics.com days when I was working with them in L.A., I began to realize that when you preach the gospel, that the Calvinist has to preach the gospel the same way that the Arminian has to preach the gospel. At the end of the day, it's the same message. It's the same gospel. Uh, I, the Calvinist doesn't know who's chosen, Right? And the Armenian doesn't know who's going to choose. At the end of the day, it's the same evangelistic message and same evangelistic uh, tactic. And so I began to realize that it, although that you might have your camp and it might find it interesting and helpful, 
uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter a whole lot. You probably agree on way more than you disagree on. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to have mm. uh, we, we need to have um, that freedom to choose and that and that uh, that graciousness to allow people to have a differing of opinion mm. and to realize that we're united mm. on the core understanding of the doctrine and that we've all got the same message uh, that we need to preach and it's preached in the same way. And one of the things that I, I appreciate about the the pulpit ministry here at Northview is that we're willing to go through texts. And so if the text talks about God's sovereignty over salvation and that kind of thing, then the preacher should unapologetically right. preach that. And if the text talks about our our the necessity to choose Jesus, the necessity to make a decision and to to that you're responsible for your decisions and the, the preacher should be able to unapologetically preach that. So it's not that we, we pick theological systems to, to preach through. We don't pick confessional statements to preach through. We don't do any of that. We preach through the Bible. And so when a passage comes up, that's, wow, it sure sounds Calvinist. Well, maybe that's on how you understand Calvinism and that's what it sounds like to you. That's fine. But the question we should be asking ourselves is, are we understanding these texts well? Are we reading them well? Are we applying them well? If we're mishandling the text, that's an issue. But if we're handling it rightly and it just goes against something that we're used to being true, then, well, maybe we should just let the Word of God be the Word of God and challenge our presuppositions wherever it may do that. It's almost too bad that there's two camps, right? And you feel like you got to choose one, right? And yeah. that, that's where all the debate comes in then. And if we didn't have those choices, we would look at it and go, wow, this is really interesting. How does God work this together? So is, it, right? is it really necessary to have both camps? Could we not find a middle ground since it's kind of people two different have, emphasis that are being placed? People have tried to find middle ground. Uh, Norm Geisler wrote a book called Chosen But Free. Just got ripped. Yeah, and he, <laughs> he tries to find this middle ground. And I, I honestly, I just think at the end of the day, it's just it's just a matter of brothers and sisters in Christ being gracious to one another and allowing for a different of opinion. Yeah. So we're all cowboys and cowgirls with the the lasso of the gospel, trying to pull people into the kingdom with God's truth. Thanks for using that How's cowboy that? analogy. <laughs> you know, if Daryl doesn't at the end of this podcast put on Cosmic Cowboy by Barry McGuire, <laughs> I'm going to be very disappointed. Um, so let's move on to another question here. A question about the death of Lazarus. Uh, John eleven thirty three. Jeremy, can you read that one for us? Yeah. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So if Jesus knows the great joy that awaits us in the afterlife, then why is he so sad about the death of mm. Lazarus? That's a great question, and I'm curious how you guys uh, understand that, but I, I don't understand that to be that Jesus is sad that Lazarus has died. Uh, what, I, what I understand there is when I read that, I see that he's sad at their, their unbelief, how, how weak their faith is. Really? Interesting. <clears throat> yeah, w- 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 I mean, Jesus still has emotion. And so even though he knows all these things, the fact that God knows everything doesn't mean that God doesn't have some emotional connection to things. So, you know, God, um, God was saddened when he saw the evil 
that had uh, covered the earth in Genesis 6 before the flood. And, and so just because God knows everything doesn't mean that he's disconnected from, um, from any kind of emotional connection with, with, his, with his creation. Yeah, I, I think that just to kind of piggyback on what Kyle was saying, I think the fact that Jesus is weeping shows that God, God hates death. Yeah, like there's a there's a reason why why Jesus rose from the dead is that death ought not be, and one day will not be, but until that day we we live in this tension where Jesus, who is God, and is human, knows that death is awful, and in that moment he he's sorrowful over the death of a lost a lost loved one. Um, I. I think this is a perfect passage to show people who um, who want to mourn at their Christian friend's memorial, right? That there's there can kind of be a subculture around Christian memorials that th- this isn't a this isn't a sad event, right? This is what well, we would a, call a lot a, of times a celebration of life, right? And right. I, I understand that because we're people who have a hope, and yet, I, so I was at my my nana's funeral a few years ago, however many years ago that was now, and one of the people who spoke at it, one of the pastors who spoke at it, said, this is not a time to mourn. And I know what he meant by it, but he's dead wrong. Like, that, this is exactly the time to mourn. Jesus demonstrates to us, with the knowledge of Lazarus' resurrection in a few days, but ultimately in the end last day, that, no, there's that time where you've lost a loved one that it's appropriate and even godly to mourn over the loss of a loved one. And so so I, I think this is a, a just a great example of how God hates death. This is permission for us to be sorrowful when our Christian and non-Christian friends die. And yet we, we're, we're people who who mourn, but we mourn with hope, with hope yeah. for those who know Jesus. But don't you think it's both, though? Because I, I think as I read the passage, Jesus is clearly, you know, disturbed that this is this world is not the way that it ought to be that death isn't the way that things are meant to be but it says that that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled Mm. and the fact is that when we read the whole story he waits to come yeah intentionally intentionally yeah yeah he wants to show him he's going to do something there yeah yeah because he loved them the motivation to show his his power was because of his love for them he so he waits yeah in the beginning of the chapter yeah and so it seems to me that there's this there's two things going on here. One, yeah. he's deeply troubled because death shouldn't be there. But two, he's deeply troubled by their faith. Yep. I, I just, I'm a, I, I agree with you in the greatly troubled thing. I just think when it talks about Jesus weeping, that, that's right. after he's, he's gone and, and he, he's asked where they laid him and they said, okay, come, come and see, and then Jesus weeps. Yeah. So I, I think, they're, again, we're, we're, it's both. It's both. Jesus is troubled at their faithlessness. He's yeah. troubled that death exists. And... He's weeping over the fact that Lazarus is dead. Yeah, Paul has this phrase in 2 Corinthians where he says he's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so as Christians, I think we, we're not only one. You know, Paul was a guy that had great joy. Philippians, he you know, talks about joy, but it's not just kind of a surface, you know, happy, happy, clappy, clappy, joy, joy kind of thing. It's, it's a deep joy. He's in prison, but he has a joy because he knows God. But he's also sorrowful because he sees the the wreck that sin has made in the world around him and in even him himself. So Paul has a, has a way to, to show how 
I think we as Christians can learn about this or can, or can improve in this. We can be both sorrowful and always rejoicing. Those things mm. can, can go hand in hand. It reminds me of that song, uh, Everyone Wants to Go to Heaven But No One Wants to Die. Ah, uh, David Crowder. Mm-hmm. Now, is that, did he come up with that or is that, isn't that an older song that he... Or is that, I wonder if that's... I don't it's know. It's probably a Larry Norman song, I'm sure. <laughs> let's, let's give it to Crowder. Let's just give it to Why him. Not? Give, it, give it to Larry. But uh, I, I think that that's a great line. Though, sorry, I was just reading through the passage a little bit. And if you read verse 24, uh, Martha replies to Jesus, uh, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So, question for you, Andy. Mm-hmm. It seems like... Martha and I think Mary, they both know that uh, that Lazarus will rise again. They do. Hmm. They do have this faith. Yeah. So why would why would Jesus be troubled because of their lack of faith? Well, in the very next verse, he says, uh, Jesus said to her, "I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me uh, will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this?" Mm-hmm. Yes, Lord, she, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after uh, she had said this, she went back and called her sister, and we go back into everything else. And so it's kind of like, well, do you really believe that, Martha? I mean, because if they really believed, they could just say, well, Jesus, tell a lot, just raise him from the dead now. And, and also in, in verse 32 later, Mary comes to where Jesus was, and she saw him. She fell at his feet, and he says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So there's the, there is this sense of, I don't know if it's faithlessness. I, I think that there's Andy's point of Jesus isn't coming into a scene where, where everyone there is like, awesome, he's here, now the problem is solved. Jesus is coming into a scene where everyone's mourning like he can't do anything. And so I think the the take on it as saying that Jesus is is also in some way troubled by the fact that that they're coming at him kind of chastising him for not coming and and now look he's dead and now what are we going to do yeah that kind of a you're powerful Jesus but yeah you're not as powerful (laughs) as death because death got him right you should have been here before death got him right now what's interesting to me is how monumental this passage is this story into the narrative of of Christ's passion and we get it going into um it's a tipping point. It is. It's yeah. absolutely a tipping point. When you read the book of John, you see that this is a rallying point. Like, wow, Jesus raised this dude from the dead. Mm-hmm. And this is going to lead into Palm Sunday. And, and people are going to mm-hmm. be like, they, they want to, this is the king, man. Like, mm-hmm. this is the guy. Mm-hmm. And then this is ultimately going to lead into his death. And even after this, don't they plot to kill Jesus and yeah. even Lazarus because of... Can I get rid of the evidence? Him, yeah, totally. Bring him up. <laughs> man. And this is, he by was the dead way, once, he's going to be dead again. <laughs> Just as a side note, I think this is important to, that, that I've heard people ask before is, well, what's the difference between Lazarus' resurrection and Jesus' resurrection? Yeah. And, it's a resuscitation. Right. So Jesus stayed not dead. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Lazarus, that guy died again. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Jesus, when, when they, the disciples saw Jesus back from the dead, they saw a man who would never die again. Like, he had defeated death. Lazarus hadn't defeated death. He came back from the dead. Hmm, but Jesus right. had defeated death. He didn't do anything to come back from the dead. That's right. He was done. He had been resuscitated. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, with Jesus, he 
he defeated death. Mm. And the disciples saw walking, talking, eternal life. They saw a man who would never die again. Mm. And this, this, this would ultimately be the tipping point for the disciples. Oh, yeah. And now that changed everything for them, and they lived fearlessly. Yeah. They were no longer afraid of death. Well, and they were killed because they had hope that one day they would have a new body that was like would, Jesus. would be like Jesus' body. Yeah. And so they are like, sure, whatever. Like, if you're going to kill me for it, that's fine. I'm only going to be dead for a little bit. Yeah. It's a great conspiracy theory here. Do we have evidence in Scripture that Lazarus died again? Mm. Maybe he's still walking around. Maybe he's still. I, he's is a it, Da Vinci Code oh, guy. They're going to make a movie. He should, start a, he should start a book tour. Well, there is this cult I'm that believes Lazarus. that John is still walking the earth. I, I don't know which one it is. Wow. Maybe it's the Mormons or something. If, if when in doubt, to blame it on the Mormons. <laughs> uh, but they, they believe that. Somebody got, you got to look that up. But yeah, they believe that John's still walking the earth. You can go find him. You can find him somewhere. Yeah, you can go look for him. Wow. It's also a Church of Bacon I read the other day. Hmm. Church of Bacon. Yeah. By the way, yeah, I went to get a lot of Middle East <laughs> people. Right? Um, uh, yeah. There's another question just to, to end the podcast here with this uh, little question. What happened to people that died before the resurrection <laughs> of Jesus? Uh, well, well, there's a couple things to note with that. First off, I, I'm not... Jesus? First off, with the Jews... The Jews um, specifically, they went into tombs like Jesus did, like Lazarus did. And the point being that their flesh would be rot, would rot off and their bones would remain and those bones would be collected and put into ossuaries, which are stone, small stone coffins big enough to basically hold a, a femur and the rest of your bones. And then they are left for the end of the age when, when God returns and will put flesh back on those bones and raise them from the dead. And in fact, in Israel to this day, if you're an archaeologist digging around there, the last thing you want to find is bones because um, the Jews will come in there and take, take over that site because they want to make sure or close it down. They, want those, they don't want those bones disturbed, right? They need to be waiting for the, for the end of the age. And so that's, God won't be able to <clears throat> find them? <laughs> that that's a great question. I don't know. Uh, sometimes they'll allow them to collect those and put them into a proper yeah. barrier. Mm. But uh, that's how a Jew at that time would have been thinking. Uh, so there's that question. I don't know mm. though that that's what they're really asking. I think well, th this person's asking. I think they're wanting to talk about the intermediate state, right? The N.T. Wright has a great line about this, and uh, "Surprised by Hope" is a book he wrote, um, talking about how the Bible says a lot more about life after life after death and life after death so so what we know yeah. about for believers that you know paul says that to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord so there's this sense in which when we die we're with god if we're christians and yet the bible is mostly quiet on what happens before the final resurrection um but yet the the thief on the cross Jesus saying, today, today yeah. you'll be with me in paradise. Totally, right? He's going to be present with the Lord. Sounds pretty immediate. And yet, and yet the future <clears throat> hope is the, is the restored, renewed um, creation with resurrected bodies. And so that, that's, the, that's what will happen after life after death. But I think this person's asking, what about non-Christians that died before? So it's asking, what happened to people that died before the resurrection of Jesus? Yeah, Luke um, 16 records a, a parable that Jesus t 
told. It's the only parable that actually names a person by by name. <laughs> and um, the rich man and Lazarus, it's called. So um, some people take this and, and look at uh, the place of the grave, Sheol, the, you know, our bodies go into the ground uh, and, and burial, and that's a picture of kind of our souls go into, the, into Sheol. Um, and some people look at this parable as a two-compartment. Um, Sheol has basically two compartments, one for the, the righteous, those who have uh, trusted and known and tried to serve God, and one for the unrighteous. So in this parable, the rich man uh, in Luke 16, it's one of the unrighteous because he, he hoarded his wealth and didn't, um, didn't trust God, didn't believe Moses and the prophets. Um, so some people look at pre-Jesus, uh, pre-resurrection, um, people being in kind of these two compartments. One's called Abraham's bosom, a place of blessing for the faithful, and the other um, a, a place actually of, of, of torment. So um, then when Christ defeats death, now we are absent from the body and present from the Lord, as you know, Darcy, as you said, the thief on the cross. You know, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So I know he died physically. His body was, um, you know, disposed of, his physical body, but his soul continued on. And because he had faith in God, faith in Christ, he was with, um, you know, with God in paradise that, that day. And uh, for those that want to study more about this, um, particularly what happened to those people um, that were not Christians, they were before the resurrection, you can read Romans chapter 4, in which the apostle uh, Paul talks about how uh, their faithfulness to, to God and, the, and his covenant with them was attributed to them as righteousness. Good. Well, thank you so much for uh, listening to our podcast. If you do have any questions that you would like us to talk about here, you can send them to extra at northview.org. And Greg, yeah. let's give you the, let's give you the, give you the, fi- the final, final word on anything. Anything? Yeah. You get the final word. As Barry Maguire singing Cosmic Cowboy takes us out, what do you want to leave everybody with? What are they going to remember? Oh, God. Through this next week to Greg's work back. got nothing. You know what? I don't. Uh, really? You should probably, you know what you should do is you should go to either the Abbotsburger Mission Campus and come and worship Jesus with us this weekend. That's a pretty safe one. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> that was pathetic. <laughs> Sorry I'm not a quote machine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a real person. I'm a real person.